Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EU VC community syndicates at theeuropeanvc.com. Today, we're happy to welcome Francisco, partner and executive director of Bind Venture Capital. Francisco is an Iberian VC with more than 30 active investments in the portfolio in different funds. Bind focuses and is dedicated to seed and early stage technology companies in different verticals strongly connected to Iberia. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving it a review and following us on LinkedIn. Want to be on top of who the best up and coming emerging VCs in Europe are and maybe even invest with them? Register for our newsletter at theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know. Francisco, welcome to the European VC. It's super cool to have you here, another Portuguese national. I'm always happy to do that. How are you today? I'm great, I'm great. And uh, thank you for the invitation. It's great to, to be here and to be part of this, uh, well, extensive list of reference VCs, GPs across Europe. It's a true pleasure for us as well, Francisco. And um, I want to start by teasing out that today's going to be actually, from my perspective at least, a super interesting episode. Because for once, we're going to be talking more about, less about investing and more about divesting. And that's kind of cool. But before we go there, Francisco, give us the origin story behind Bind. How did Bind come to be? Tell us everything. Bind started off as um, a group of business angels. It was founded by my partner, Santiago Salazar, which is Spanish, that uh, worked as a CEO of an industrial company for many, many years. But then he got married with Portuguese wife. Uh, one of the things that he had to change is he had to come to live to Portugal. And also, well, at that time, he left the, the industrial company. And so we decided to start investing in uh, angels and entrepreneurs. So he started alone, investing by himself at first. But uh, then he joined uh, or he gathered a group of other angel investors. That well, was the genesis of uh, Busy Angels, which was our initial name. So clearly when we started uh, more than a decade ago. After that, so the focus was to invest mainly in Portugal looking for already tech startups pre-seed seed stage. I entered in the picture in 2014. I'm an engineer by training. I was in consultancy doing the MBA and then I met Santiago in an internship of the MBA. I really enjoyed the connection and I was invited to join at the time Busy Angel still as an executive director and to start creating the foundations to become more structured than all the processes and organization. And this came into a reality in 2015, where we created a management company, registered here, regulated, etc. And we raised our first fund. I normally call it a marketing fund, an initial fund, which was almost an extension of our angel uh, perspective. And with that fund, we start building the foundations of the strategy that we follow today, which is to invest in um, companies that have a very strong connection with Iberia. So 
actually, Busy Angels was culturally uh, Iberian at heart. So Santiago Spanish, always coming to Spain, a lot of commute. Uh, also many of the other team members here from Portugal. And we saw a lot of complementarity between the two markets, between Portugal and Spain already at that time. And we decided to really start investing in going, entering into the Spanish market because in the Portuguese market we had already been consolidating before. We did our first investment in Spain in 2016. And uh, since then, uh, I don't know the number up to now, but we have almost 20 investments already in Spain between 15 to 20 up to date. And we have been consistently following the strategy of investing in Iberian-related companies. So for us, an Iberian-related company is a company that has a strong connection with Iberia, either the founders being from the region. The company can be headquartered in the US, uh, in Germany, uh, in the UK, but the founders need to have a strong presence and being from Spanish or Portuguese. Uh, of course, the headquarters, which is the majority of the cases in Portugal or Spain, or having a tech hub in the region. So that trend has been growing, actually. So you have now more and more in Iberia international uh, founders. So, Could I just yeah. ask you, because when you say they must have a relation to the region, that's a criteria that you have? Or is it more that that is how it typically is, meaning you focus on Iberian founders that are active in the region, and then because there's diaspora, then you also automatically end up doing some deals outside of Iberia, but where there, that connection is there. I'm guessing that it's more that way around than saying, well, we want to back Iberian founders. Yeah, no, it's a proper criteria because we do believe uh, a lot in the culture and uh, what we can bring in terms of network experience in the region uh, to the company. So it's a way that we find to also be specialized in Iberia and differentiate ourselves. Also, because it's our focus in terms of deal flow. So being able to source across Europe, you... To be able to do it right, you have to have an extensive network and have different resources. And so it is strategic for us and a criteria for us to invest. So in that bucket, we have, of course, founders that are abroad. So abroad, when you say abroad, not based in, in Iberia, but building their companies, but have still that strong cultural connection with the region. They normally tend to have some activity in the region. So you have many cases of companies in the U.S., and we have some in the portfolio, that more than 50% of the team is in Portugal or more than 50% of the team is in the U.S., in, the, in Spain, because they have their operational uh, site there. So it tends to be like that. But you also have companies based in Portugal and Spain founded by other international founders, but they are building the company in the region yeah. and they like to have a local investor to support us in uh, support them, hit the ground running, finding them the resources locally, etc. And, and so it is a criteria and a strategy for us that we follow. Do you then always lead the rounds or are you, are you more like a co-investor where they want that local partner on top of a bigger player leading? We can lead, but the truth is the majority that we have done uh, is uh, either co-lead or follow. But we co-invest 99% of the time. And yeah. at the beginning, when we were angels, we invested alone a few times. But in these past 5-10 years, uh, I would say that we have co-invested. We do, and that's another, well, I don't know if it's specificity from us, but we do like a lot to co-invest, to have 
different perspectives in the companies to build actively those relationships with our co-investors. And we really try to have those close uh, partnerships, not only locally in Portugal and Spain. We have co-invested with a very, very large number of local players, but also more and more building those relationships with European players and also U.S., more distant, but still um, looking more and more to Europe, to companies here. In 2015, so we, we started the basis of this fund with this marketing fund that I would say the fund one or fund zero as the possibility. And then in 2019, we changed the brand. We wanted to transmit this idea of, of course, we are not angels anymore. We do try to follow the angel approach in terms of proximity to the founders, but we weren't angels anymore. And we changed the name to Bind Venture Capital. So Bind as the binding contracts, binding relationships and network that we have with the founders and the companies. And of course, the venture capital to traduce a little bit our position in the market. And with that, we launch also our uh, second fund, a 10 million euro fund, exactly with the same strategy. So again, consistency. It's a word that you probably will be hearing from me a lot during this podcast. So it's the same. Pre-seed seed companies, tech startups with a strong connection with Iberia. The difference from the first fund is that we have a little bit more firepower to invest in the rounds, a little bit more follow-on capacity. In that fund, we have currently, oh, well, I don't want to say anything wrong, but 15 investments. It's a good number. And we are still active and looking for new companies um, to invest across the region. And we are now working in the third fund that will follow, again, a very, very similar strategy. Now, 50% of the fund for follow-ons, a more clear bucket for pre-seed seed. So we'll have investment targets in both stages, but again, looking for uh, Iberian-related tech startups. In terms of sectors and industries that might be uh, also relevant, we have been historically agnostic, the perspective that being focused in a region that's still comparing with uh, Europe or the US is still a region that's small in size. So for you to get very specialized could be a risk in terms of uh, being able to really build a diversified portfolio with the quality intended. And so we have been agnostic now in this third fund. We continue to be generalist, but we have four target sectors that will be led by different partners. So one in um, digital IT, another one in, um, well, this will include AI, uh, software, all these types of companies. Then we have consumer goods, where we have e-commerce, marketplaces, some digital native brands. We'll have a vertical of sustainability tech, where we include mostly digital health and climate tech. And finally, a blockchain vertical that we believe is also an uh, important uh, area to really be focused and have uh, specific targets in this next uh, fund that we are building. And I think Francisco kind of teased something in the beginning, and I kind of want to get you to talk a bit about it, which is that we'll be talking a bit about divesting <laughs> in this episode. I'd love to shoot the ball over to you and, and give us a quick overview of how you guys over at Bind think about securing returns for your LPs and what is your, your exit strategy and how those conversations go with your LP base? 
Well, we are, are probably not the most experienced GPs that you have here in the podcast to talk about that. So, But nevertheless, we did have some activity done in the past in divesting. So divesting is an activity in itself. It should be worked on by us. So it's not something that you could wait that the companies or the founders will work for you. I, I believe that. Of course, there's a mix. You have exits of full company exits, etc. But... I think it's something that you really need to be alert and uh, look at your own uh, fund, own interest, own metrics, and uh, look for opportunities to divest. So, and building on this, we have tried to gradually, and as the fund matures, of course, be more active looking for uh, divestment uh, opportunities. I think we can say that we have been fortunate enough to be successful in some of those uh, divesting opportunities in the recent past, so namely uh, last year when the market was very active with a lot of liquidity. Now, looking back, there were some good decisions. And so for us, in terms of divesting, there are, of course, different possibilities. There's a, and well, and, and of course, there's two types of divesting. There's the divesting that we normally call an exit, a success, right? Uh, some multiples on the capital invested and the divestment of not so successful cases. We can split those, but I think that the second ones are also important because it has an impact on your daily operations. But looking at the exit, successful exits, if you want to call it, the main ways that we have been working with. First is, of course, well, trying to advise the teams or the founders uh, being part of the management discussions regarding future of the company, regarding opportunities to sell, because they do appear along the way. Uh, sometimes it's too soon, but it is some important discussions and that you can have the opportunity to completely sell the company. And we have those examples that we have done last year. The second one, I would say more dependent on us, is to find secondary opportunities, actively looking for secondary opportunities. We have been following this also, this strategy. Last year, for example, in our fund one, we did a secondary sale that was a fund returner. So it was very important for us. Uh, we are now living on profits. I normally say that I sleep better, but it's good, of course. It's good and it was actively done by us. So we found the ways to get to a potential buyer and we worked on that solution. We have done that more than once. Uh, so at the end of last year, we have done it again. It's not guaranteed, but we do spend part of our time uh, looking for the solutions. And it's something that we will continue doing, that we target to continue doing. And we, we normally look for those opportunities when the company has reached probably a level of success and relevance in our portfolio that makes us want to reduce exposure to that company. And so looking to transform TVPI in DPI, so to materialize part of the multiples that we have in paper in the portfolio. Could you, Francesco, be more concise or precise in terms of how you think about exposure to an asset? How do you track it? What are you comfortable with? When do you say we pull the plug? Could you maybe use as case uh, study the sale that you just described before? You can, of course, have some, some fixed uh, criteria. And well, we, we've been adapting those. But I think in general terms, 
if we have a company in the portfolio that has done tremendously well and represents, for example, more than half of the value of the fund or even more than the total value of the fund, because that can happen, we actively try to look for those opportunities. Also, it tends to also be connected with the stage, right? So we invest in pre-seed seed. We probably will not look for divesting in seed or series A. So when companies are reaching more series B, series C, it's something that we think about. And then it's more, some cases is opportunistic opportunity. So it just presents the case and we bring it to our investment committee and we decide. And I can tell you, sometimes, or the majority of the times, if not all of the times in our case, there has not been a consensus decision. So we do have contrary opinions if we should sell or not. But uh, as in investing, it's good to have contrary opinions in discussing an opportunity. I'm curious to ask Francisco, because you just said that, right? It's very opportunistic and sometimes these these opportunities just present themselves and it's about being able and prepared to seize them. But I'm curious, and I guess some of our listeners might be as well, how do these opportunities come by? Because I guess you're also kind of tracking where these things are coming from. Is it other investors that see you at events? Is it a result of your marketing and communications? Is it through the networks of the founders themselves? How are these opportunities reaching you? Where are they coming from? Do you know? I would say that the opportunistic part, so not the active part that uh, we are responsible for. So like us uh, reaching yeah. and, and talking directly to some players, they would tend to come from our close uh, connections with other investors. Because when, when we talk, for example, with a growth investor, they are very used to secondaries and to maybe buy primary and secondary sales. Well, it tends to, in those conversations, we touch the, the subject we can build something on that. We are not in events showing the portfolio and we want to buy. It's not like that. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. It comes naturally because, of course, growth investors also understand because this is natural. The best way to sell is to, of course, be able to reduce exposure and reduce uh, risk. It's a more than valid reason. You are not selling because you don't believe in the company or because there's a problem with the founders. No, it's not that. It's because you need to reduce exposure. What are the uh, counter arguments to that? Because you said that it's not always a consensus decision, right? So in your experience, what are the factors that are leading other stakeholders, whether in your team or LP base, to believe that, well, maybe we should hold on to the asset? I think it's uh, the clear perspective of uh, how that asset will behave in the future. Are we cutting our wings or are we well, reducing our potential earnings in the future. And it's not an easy question to answer. And that's why there are different approaches in the market to exit, because, of course, we read and we, we try to learn a little bit about that. And our industry works with fund returners and top performers. And companies during their lifetime, and even the lifetime of the fund, there are ups and downs all the time. And sometimes it really pays off to be able to wait uh, until the end. So it's the trade-off that you really have to find. And uh, I would say that each company will have their own and the criteria when they will be willing to sell or not. Of course, now probably it's easy to say, well, we should have sold more last year because we were on the uh, on a spike, etc. But at that time, uh, it wasn't probably an easy decision because you had very good expectations on the company. They were growing two, three times a year. They will continue to grow. 
and maybe they are they continue to grow right now, but it's just evaluation uh, multiples that have been reduced, and so that's probably something that affects the performance. But yeah. Nevertheless. I've got a teasing question here. <laughs> that deal that you, where you did a partial exit that uh, gave you a fund returner, is it better or worse now had <laughs> you not taken the money? Honestly, it's, it's not a teasing question because it's not dependent on the performance of the company. For us as a fund, I think it was a good decision and yeah. I stand by it. But uh, And by the way, we only sold like, uh, it was a partial exit. The majority okay. of our stake in that company is still in our fund okay. and is still an important part of our TVPI. For us, it was a very good decision, independently of the performance, of course. As I say, companies go up and down and in two years, they've been down and they are now up. So uh, We just invested in Acrobat Adventures, who in their angel fund had 16x DPI and 58 TVPI, and much of that DPI was driven by a partial exit in Miro. There's nothing against taking the money when it's there and then saying, okay, we'll leave some for later, but now we're taking this off the table. And Francisco, I asked you a while ago about the opportunistic approach there, but as you started off by replying, there is a big component of that, that is you guys actually proactively thinking and executing the divestment strategy. And you, you've said this uh, in the beginning of this interview, that it's an activity in itself. So tell us, how do you guys think about your divestment strategy and how do you source the best buyers out there? I think at the beginning, you first really have to see it as an, an activity. When I entered here, that was not the case. Maybe also because we were in a period of building the foundations and, of course, investing and building the portfolio. But putting that on the calendar as a proper activity that the GPs need to focus on and uh, objectives, every period connected with that, I think it's like every other activity in every other company, something that works, right? So putting objectives, putting targets, uh, measuring those targets and measuring those objectives and revising them all the time. The second part is actively also during our network building, having that focus of building the network with those players. Like in investing, again, it's the same. We meet the co-investor, we will not be investing with them in the next week or in the next month or even in the next year. We have very close co-investors that we really share a lot of deals and we have never invested together. And uh, we're always saying, is this, this, is this the, the moment that we will do it? In the divestment side, it's even, I would say, more limited in, in time because the volume tends to be less, right? So you invest a lot and you, you divest with less frequency. So it comes with that. It comes with building the network, finding the players, and it's a continuous process, I would say. I'm curious, Francesco, because Lisbon has gotten very hot lately, and some would say that that's maybe because of a, uh, <laughs> a tax scheme for crypto guys. But apart from that, how do buyers think about the deal of the assets that you have? It's um, maybe a more difficult question because I'm not on their side, on the, the buyer's side. They will probably analyze the company as an opportunity to invest, to enter in a fast-growing company. They will analyze it as they do for any growth deal that they, they have. And, of course, they will probably look at the opportunity to enter at that stage with that price and if it makes sense for them as a, a global portfolio strategy. 
I don't know if it's exactly the question that you had, but uh, I won't see a lot of differences from a traditional deal that they do, honestly. I was just wondering if you felt any bias towards or against the region in general? No, I'm, I'm, I, I don't feel. I, I do think that the region in Iberia, it's uh, getting their name out there. So, And it's something that's been worked on for the last decade. And uh, now more and more, uh, Southern Europe is clearly on the investment map. You have a lot of great companies coming out of here. Maybe 10 years ago, you would have that uh, maybe political risk, geographical risk. I, I don't think it's there uh, right now. The quality of the companies, of the founders, even of the investors on the cap table when these growth investors come in, that is all reassurance. Companies, when they reach growth stage, they have went to several very strict and competitive and benchmarkable due diligences. It's global, and I think Iberia is in the global arena uh, playing with their tools. Yeah. Interesting right. to hear. Unfortunately, we can't keep these interviews forever and explore all the topics, so it's time that we move into the quickfire round. The quickfire round is when I'll ask you a set of quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds each. Are you ready? Uh, sure. Uh, I don't know, but I'll try. <laughs> First question of the quick fire round is what areas, technologies or sectors excite you the most that other people around you don't really feel that excited about? Difficult question, of course, but I would say, and I, I've seen a recent uh, report stating that uh, funding for artificial intelligence has gone down at much higher level than other sectors. And uh, actually, I was quite surprised the idea behind that uh, reduction is, uh, well, business models are not showing results, so investors are a little bit more careful on that side. I do continue to be bullish. Uh, artificial intelligence, of course, touches a lot, right? So it's a world uh, in terms of yeah. potential and the areas that it can work. I do continue to be very bullish in artificial intelligence companies. I do believe there's a lot of room to evolve. There's a lot of work with data that can be done and there's still a lot of room to grow and some great companies to be consolidated in the market. We definitely agree with, with that view, Francisco. <laughs> actually, we actually have in our syndicates a deal focusing on, on that kind of vertical. So we definitely agree with you and hopefully we see that further develop. Second question though, Francisco, of the quick fire round, which is what are your top tips for emerging VCs across Europe who are fundraising right now? I would pick the word that I said at the beginning, which is uh, the definition of emerging. Uh, sometimes you have already some marketing funds or some work done. For me, the consistency is something that I really do value. So being able to show track record, results, processes, and well, just trying to scale on that, but being able to continue following that strategy that you have proven that it works. It's a little bit like we do in startups. We invest, you look for an MVP, for an initial product market validation. And I think that's um, really important. So I would say that would be my, my biggest take. I like that you are consistent in your, <laughs> in your double <laughs> downing and the consistency. <laughs> that's nice. Third and final question of the quick fire, Francisco, which is what is the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you've been in venture? Difficult one. I think the hardest one, because I've been in the sector for so long that now I believe that uh, everything, 
is uh, probably more intuitive. I don't know if it's counterintuitive, but taking on the subject of divestment, I do believe that uh, not believing that things will work themselves or happen if a company is really successful and it will be very easy for you to divest. I think it's something that when I entered into this sector, I believe it was possible. So if the company is great, you'll have always opportunities to sell and the thing will happen for itself. It might continue to, to be so, right? But I do think you have to work on it. I think it's actually a very interesting thing that you bring up because some of the people that we look up to and admire that are working with emerging managers, some of the big, you know, kind of big topics that they say that is often overlooked is thinking proactively about defining your divestment strategy. And it's actually something that I've also been realizing in, in talking to many inspiring and emerging GPs is that sometimes exit routes aren't super well defined. You know, divestment approaches aren't super well defined. So I think it's a very cool insight that you bring and I definitely agree. Sorry for interrupting, Andreas. Francisco, thanks so much for joining us. I am always happy to meet the Portuguese ecosystem here where David is coming from. So that's awesome. Thanks so much. And real pleasure. And uh, thanks you for having me. And well, when you come to Portugal, uh, of course, invited to, to meet or grab a coffee. It's a great place. We are for sure coming for Web Summit probably a couple of days before where we are going to do some stuff with uh, emerging managers there, of course. So uh, that's going to be fun. Okay, cool, cool. So we'll meet then. Thank you for listening to this episode of The European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EU VC community syndicates at theeuropeanvc.com. Want to be on top of who the best up-and-coming emerging VCs in Europe are and maybe even invest with them? Register for our newsletter at theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know.